0: We're, uh we've been in a series, we started it a couple weeks ago, but we're in a series called The Seven Deadly Sins, and basically The Seven Deadly Sins, it's a list that began in the late 300s, around 375, by a monk who kind of went uh, and went into the desert and then kind of wrote down what he called uh, eight temptations, and he kind of boiled down what are the chief temptations, and he came up with eight and kind of wrote out this list. And then in the late 500s, about 590, Pope Gregory the Great took this list and he boiled it down to seven because uh, in the church, the history of the church, numbers have always kind of uh, played an important thing. The number three is an important symbol because of the Trinity. Uh, The number seven uh, is important because of the number of days in the week. It's kind of a holy number that way. The number 10 is kind of seen as the perfect number. So you see 10 or or multiples of 10 meaning kind of uh, complete. And then 12 is the number of the 12 tribes of Israel or the 12 apostles. And so Pope Gregory the Great, who thought numbers were really important, kind of boiled the list of eight down to seven. And he turned them into, not temptations, but sins, seven deadly sins. And it's not actually a list that's in the Bible. These are sins that are all throughout the Bible. The closest we get to something like a list of sins he, either in uh, Mark 20, where Jesus talks about things that are in the heart, uh, or this list in Proverbs chapter 6, where it says this, There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a man who stirs up dissension among brothers but the list of seven deadly sins themselves aren't actually in the bible and in this list of seven it's always kind of in church history or church tradition the sin of pride has been seen as the primary sin it's the sin that led satan to kind of rebel against god it's actually the sin that shows up with adam and eve in the garden of uh, of eden and so it's kind of if you will the chief of all the sins. So G.K. Chesterton once said, if I had only one sermon to preach, it would be on pride. And so this morning, we're going to kind of look at this thing called pride and what it looks like for us to be proud. Before we uh, jump in, I'd like to, if I could, just um, open us in a word of prayer. And Father, we do just come before you now realizing that we make light of sin. That if we, had, uh, if we had thorns in our shirt, we wouldn't lie down with thorns in our shirt. We would take them all out. and Yet we don't treat our hearts the same way. That if there's sin in our heart, we don't, we don't attack it the same way. We don't try and weed things out the same way. And, and this morning, I just pray you'd lay us bare that you would open us up and help us see the things that are hidden, the things that we're allowing to exist that we shouldn't allow to exist, and that in all these things we would bow our knee before you, that we would exalt you, that we would worship you, that we would give ourselves wholly over to you. And we pray that in Christ's name. Amen. If you would, turn to 1 John in the New Testament, First John is uh, right after Hebrews, and then James, and then we get the first of John's letters. And he gives kind of a summary statement here in chapter two, First John chapter two, verse fifteen. And John writes this: First John chapter two, verse fifteen. Do not love the world or anything. In the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So if the love of God is in us, we will naturally be pointed back to God and will not be distracted and enamored with the world. So if God's love is in you, it will force you or focus you away from the world. And if you are focused or forced or enamored with the world, then it says something about whether God's love is in you. And he continues here and he says, For everything in the world, the stuff of the world, the cravings of sinful man and the lust of his eyes. Last week we talked about lust. So the idea here is the appetites, the cravings, the desires. The cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, the sin of of appetites in some sense. Um, And then the boasting of what he has and does. So this is where pride comes in. What you have are the things that you were blessed with. So being proud about the things you have, what, what you possess, what you own, what you've been blessed with, and the things that man does. And these are really the opportunities that exist in front of you. So the things that you have that belong to you, your blessings, and then the opportunities open to you in life, the things that you do, that we can begin to take credit for these things. Think that they are natural to us because of our greatness, not something that that's derived from God's blessing or the opportunities that he's opened to us because of our gifts. And we can begin to boast about these things. And in some sense, where lust is a sin of the appetite or desires, pride is a sin of the intellect. So this morning, we're kind of diving into that. Another verse here in Psalms 10, verse four, it says this, in his pride, the wicked does not seek him, meaning God. In all his thoughts... There is no room for God. Pride really is something that comes down to self-sufficiency. It's anything that calls into account the place of God. So in talking about what pride is, maybe we can draw it this way. I've, uh, I've said before that this, this is going to be very symbolic drawing, not, not, not highly... Is that me, Kip, or is that you? Is Kip even in here? (laughs) All right. So, when Kip comes back, we'll figure this out. But the idea is... uh, How do I do it now when I was planning on drawing it? Um, So I've tried to define over time... That righteousness, which is very synonymous with justice, is in some sense being in, a, in this right relationship with God and with others. So if we picture God over here, and we picture ourselves here, and then others here, that somehow being in this right relationship with God and others, this tension, uh, rightly understood, is righteousness and justice. If we sin, if we sin against God or if we sin against others, we fall out of this right relationship. And it creates a debt or a deficit. That debt has to be paid for. That sin has to be paid for. So in some sense, uh, we can pay it back by being punished, which is um, kind of our, our idea of criminal justice, restorative justice. You guys looking at my picture now? All right. So, here's Jacob. Here's God, and here's us, and here's others. It's, it's an etch-a-sketch. All right. So, when we sin, we, we kind of fall out of this right place, okay, in this right tension with God and others. Here's what pride does. Pride... Is is where we become in ourselves, kind of self sufficient. We think of ourselves more highly than we ought to, and what that what that basically accomplishes is is this idea of lessening the gap between God and us. That God, the difference between us and God, that the place that He has. Over us, his sovereignty, our dependence underneath him gets lessened. Not only that, but our kind of height compared to others grows. So the gap between God and us lessens as we have pride, and our exalted place over others also gets out of whack. Does that make sense? So pride is a sin of the intellect whereby we begin to see ourselves more highly than we ought to, and therefore we kind of do an injustice against the place of God, the bigness of God, and we do an injustice against others and their value or their worth. In one sense, it's a competition. When it comes to God, a lot like Nebuchadnezzar in the Old Testament where he looks around and sees everything and begins to go, I run everything. I rule everything. I control everything. And there's this smugness that in that, he becomes competitive with God in terms of place. And that's where God kind of looks at him and says, you might have power over all of those things, but I have power over you and everything else. And God takes it away and strikes him down. And the sin or the, uh, the kind of punishment that God gives him is that he ends up in the field eating grass. And so God basically lays him low and says, I'm going to take you from the top. I'm going to put you all the way at the bottom to where not only do you have good standing against other humans, you look like an animal. I'm putting you beneath everybody. I have ultimate power and place over you. So on the, on the front side, competition over place with God looks a lot like Nebuchadnezzar, where we begin to think that it, that it really derives from us and not see that it derives from God. Another way uh, that it has competition is with others, that um, sometimes we end up here and God naturally exalts somebody into leadership. Purposely, because God wants that individual to have a certain amount of his authority vested into that person or that group, like a, a board of overseers. And so there's a natural giving of authority to someone or to a group. And we find ourselves over here not liking that. Who do you think you are? Or how come you get all of this privilege? And we end up in competition. Um, this direction, a lot like Moses and Aaron. Now, if you remember the story of Moses and Aaron, uh, God puts the authority into Moses, but gives him his brother Aaron to kind of be a helper because Aaron uh, spoke more eloquently or Moses had insecurities about how he could speak or command authority when he was face-to-face with other people. So Moses is the one that has authority. Uh, Aaron is blessed given a measure of authority, derivative from what God is doing with Moses. So he's on the coattails of Moses. And as time goes by, he begins to lose that sense of his blessing coming through Moses and begins to say, hey, I'm I'm serving in this role. I'm doing these things. Uh, Why should I not have equal status with Moses or in some sense, maybe take over and have the authority rather than Moses having the authority. And so he begins to have pride against Moses, who God kind of put in a certain place. And God just strikes it down, strikes him with leprosy and just says, "Um, you're rebelling against the order of things that I have put in place. And in that pride, I'm going to lay you low again. And so he takes away what would be the person who's in front of people operating as the face person in a lot of ways, what would be the punishment, like Nebuchadnezzar being lower beneath the animals, what would be the punishment you'd do to a face person? Give them leprosy. We already knew the answer there, so it was a trick question, but give them leprosy. You take away the source in some sense of their pride and lay them low and teach them, wherever you end up, you occupy the position God gives you. That's your position. That's your place and to step out of that place is to rebel against God in pride. It's um, a fascinating thing about David. We, we give David a lot of grief. You know, it's said that of David, he was a man after God's own heart. And we see a giant sin in his life where he ends up uh, in this adulterous relationship and, and it just destroys his legacy and his family and all sorts of things kind of coming from that. But David. If you look at his whole life, there's a bunch of times where you see his, his humility. And one of them is he was anointed as God's chosen one to be king when he was a young boy. So you see the prophet come and say, um, I'm anointing you, you're going to be king over Israel. Well, Saul is still king, right? Right? And so he hasn't, in some sense, been crowned yet. He's just been anointed, but he knows that he's God's chosen man. Well, as he grows, eventually Saul becomes jealous of the, the place or the calling or the position or the, the, the popularity that David has, and he begins to chase David, and he's going to try and kill David. And so David's running from Saul, and then eventually he ends up in this cave, and Saul comes in, and he has the opportunity To kill Saul, who's trying to kill him, and to take, in in some sense, arguably his rightful place as king, but he chooses not to do it. And his own friends, his own uh, kind of entourage, says, "Why did you not kill him when you had the opportunity?" And David says, "It's not for me to raise my hand against God's anointed. Until the the person in front of me in line is is removed by God Himself." then I'm not going to take that position. I mean it's an amazing humility. He could have just said, "I was anointed by God. Let me have the power now. Let me claim the crown now." But he waited for the right order of things to happen till God raised him up. I mean it's a fascinating lesson for our generation because we don't tend to wait for God's plan to develop. You also see another situation where David is trapped in a city where if he waits too long, Saul's army is going to circle the city. But instead of just turning and running, which is the right thing to do before the town kind of gets encircled, he stops and he's going to pray to God, what is it you want me to do? What is your decision for me? And you see kind of this difference between Saul and David. Uh, Saul, when he was in the similar situation where time was of the essence and he was waiting for the, the prophet to come and to offer the sacrifice and bless kind of this battle. But, but the men are beginning to get worried and things are kind of going south and time is of the issue. He, he ends up doing what he ought not do. And he gives the sacrifice and he gives the blessing rather than waiting on the right order of things or waiting on the Lord. And you see David having this patience to say, I'm not going to get out in front of myself I'm going to keep my place, and I'm going to be humble and let God lead. And God have the authority. God have the final say. So what we realize, there's a lot of different ways we can compete with not only God, but what God's order or kind of priority is for things. We can compete with God. We can compete with others and not submit. Um, C.S. Lewis says this, Pride gets no pleasure out of having something only out of having more of it than the next man. So when we see that competition is at the heart of a lot of this pride, we, we begin to understand that embedded in that is a type of comparison. When we see the competition that comes from pride, we see in competition is this embedded thing of comparing stuff, of comparisons. Now, I, uh, we can go ahead and get rid of this. I, I realize this in a big way. Um, when I became a dad for the first time. It was probably the the most clear-cut example to me in my life of when I just got ridiculously proud. We had one kid, Mary Joy, and uh, Mary Joy was an amazing kid. She didn't cry, ever. She did what she was told. At age like two, she was incredibly verbal, and I could give her logical, deductive arguments simple ones, right? If you do this, this will happen. Therefore, don't do this. And she would get it, like two-step arguments. Now, I, I had been a youth pastor, and I had junior high kids and high school kids that couldn't even get if-then kind of causal, causal stuff, right? Cause effect. But here's my two-year-old, and she would get this stuff. I mean, she was amazing. I was amazing, so we would go to restaurants, and kids would be acting up, and I would just make a comparison. Um, you're not a good parent, like me, right? We'd go to stores, and kids would be pitching fits, like in the carts and things like that. And you know and you know how parents get when they're at the end of the rope? They're like yelling in the, the food aisle, and people are like wide-eyed, you know, who's going to call child services, you know, and... And I'd just be kind of shaking my head all smug like, man, I am so good at this, this parenting thing. If ever you, I should write a book. I really should. I can already tell how good I am at this. I should start writing the book now. I mean, I, Tam, I even pulled Tamara into it. You know, Tamara's like, her number one strength, I don't know if you can say your number one strength is humility. I'll say it for her. Like, one of her number one strengths is, is humility. She doesn't make comparisons. She doesn't compete. But I began to pull her into it so much because I was so just impressed with our parenting. And then we had Esther. <laughs> and, uh, and I realized real quick it had nothing to do with me. It had everything to do with the kids, and all kids are different um, and, uh, and I began to realize that as time goes on, I, it wa- I wasn't as great as I thought it was. And that other people that I was making comparisons against were not as bad as I thought they were. Um, I have four girls, and so it's a good thing I learned this lesson now because I get around families with, like, uh, boys. Man, I feel bad for you. <laughs> like, I mean... They just destroy things. It's this (laughs) wreckage. But when we when we get in at the beginning of things, it's easy for us to kind of make these comparisons and think it's it's the same when we planted Antioch. I remember thinking we had the perfect church. Nobody had left. Nobody had complained. You know. And then I realized it had only been like three weeks. You know. (laughs) And, And then it kind of kind of went from there, right? But experience tends to humble us. It begins to level the playing field and, and kind of um, brush over those comparisons and, and just make us realize uh, we're not as great as we maybe sometimes think we are. But competition and comparison is the heart of what this thing is we call pride. Now there's two kinds of pride. So what pride is, let me just read this. Pride is... Um, So if you want to write this down, this is kind of my best definition of pride. What is pride? Pride is a perversion of place, worth, or authority whereby we exalt ourselves and diminish the place, worth, or authority of God and others. What is pride? Pride is a perversion of place, worth, or authority whereby we exalt ourselves and and diminish the place, worth, or authority of God and others. Now that's all very cerebral and intellectual. And, and what I've begun to realize in thinking about pride for a couple weeks now is it's a lot different and a lot less immediate or subtle than, than something like lust. So last week we talked about lust. I walk in and say we're going to talk about lust. And everyone in the room is like, yeah, that's a problem. It's a problem. We all know it's a problem. Okay, so what are we going to say about it? How are we going to fix it? But but there's this sense of immediacy with out-of-control appetites. When we say pride, we're like, yeah, I know that's a religious word, and I know it's a bad thing, and I know it's out there. But if I said, tell me how you're struggling with pride, you'd kind of be like, ah, I don't know. I mean, I know I probably do struggle with it. You know what I'm talking about? Like, But it's not this sense of immediacy that comes with something like lust. So I want to try and frame it maybe a different way. The interesting thing about pride is that there's two kinds. We can kind of cash it out two different ways. We can talk about it in the familiar way individually, individual pride. Or we can talk about it corporately, cultural pride, generational pride, the pride of of an entire group. Let me read you a couple Bible verses just so you see what I mean by that. But in the Bible, we see pride talked about obviously in terms of individual. But listen to this. Isaiah 2.17 says this. The arrogance of man will be brought low and the pride of men humbled. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. In that verse, Isaiah is prophetically talking about the pride of all of us in terms of the human condition And that pride is ubiquitous. It's all throughout our condition as men and women, as humans. Jeremiah 48, 29 says this, We have heard of Moab's pride, her overweening pride and conceit, her pride and arrogance and the haughtiness of her heart. Whose heart? Well, Moab. Moab is a a group, a tribe, an ethnicity, a whole people. And so here you see the prophet talking about a whole kind of nation and the pride of that nation or that group. Does that make sense? One more verse in Hosea 7.10. says, Israel's arrogance testifies against him. But despite all this, he does not return to the Lord his God or search for him. So we can talk about pride in terms of individual pride, but we can also talk about pride in terms of generational or cultural pride. And I think this is where we come at understanding pride, I think, the easiest. Because if I talk about America and how proud we are, I think it begins to conjure up some of the difficulties or challenges that we have. You see, um, rudeness is is a manifestation of pride. How is that? Rudeness because someone else is not worth your being careful, taking the time, or giving honor or deference to, or being patient with. They're stupid, they're slow, they're annoying, they're uh, irrelevant, and so we're rude. We, We take no account of them. You can see it sometimes with the way people treat waiters or waitresses. Watch how people treat waiters or waitresses and you can kind of see what's really going on in their heart with regard to people. If they, if they stop and talk to them, interact because that's a person doing a job and deserves some honor, or if that's a servant serving them and, and we're going to talk to them kind of out of our arrogance and our pride or just that distinction we're making in terms of worth. But rudeness shows pride. Are we a rude culture? Um, Lack of respect for authority is probably, in my mind, the chief symptom or or manifestation of pride. If you don't respect natural systems of authority, teachers, parents, elders, uh, older people in society, uh, if you don't respect the people that Deserve respect, or that God has said, have the authority so that you ought to respect that. If you don't respect those positions of authority, there's a sense in which you're ignoring or making light of what God has set up worthy of respect and treating yourself as if rules don't apply to you or authority that other people have doesn't apply to you. Why? Because you're going to make up your own rules. And so lack of respect, I think, is this incredible manifestation of pride. And it is rampant. I remember when I was in high school, there was a group of, of guys that kind of ran together that I knew of. And I remember one time they beat up a grandpa outside of a 7-Eleven. I mean, and I remember thinking, so, and they did it just to do it. Uh, and I remember thinking, something is so wrong about that. Like, just in my gut. Like, man, there's just... It's just, you're, you're crossing a line here where you have absolutely no boundaries or respect for age or authority or, you know, those distinctions. And, and I just, I remember going, man, there, there's something funky here. So I've always kind of paid attention to, ever since high school, how youth in our culture treat teachers and elders, even as a youth youth pastor, I mean, I, I remember just thinking about it. And there is, I mean, I don't want to make an overstatement, but I mean, is this fair? There's no respect, and I, we we engender no respect in the youth of our culture. I mean, maybe you can argue with me, in, but as a generalization, we've lost the sense of respect for authority, for teachers, for parents, for elders for the elderly and we have this incredible youth culture going on and so lack of respect is kind of a cultural thing Um, quick to get annoyed I was in Ghana recently and it's fascinating I've never been in worse traffic in my life we went uh, one mile in two hours okay now what you're picturing right now is slow okay that's that's an accurate picture but it's, it's, it's a wrong picture. What you need to picture is chaos. Absolute chaos, which creates slowness. Does that make sense? And what's unbelievable is the facial expressions, the body language, cutting people off, was at the absolute height of what it would be if you picture um, right before road rage. You know what I'm talking about? Yet nobody was punching anybody. Like nobody was taking out guns. Nobody was like hitting things. Nobody was flipping their lid. And I remember, because I had a lot of time to think, I remember sitting there thinking, if somebody gave that body language to somebody in America, somebody would die. If somebody did that maneuver to somebody in America, somebody would die would die because when someone does that to you in America offends your dignity with that kind of body language or disregarding you to that level I mean we all know what road rage feels like right it just comes out of this deep place in us and just it's just immediate we just react and it's part of Our pride. We as Americans just have this sense of um, you don't encroach or step on my dignity or my pride to that level. And if you do, everything in me will react because I have that sense of pride. And so as a culture, as a generation, I think we can talk about it and begin to realize that those things that are generational or cultural as Americans are also the parts where we struggle with pride ourselves. I remember asking an African-American friend in seminary why a particular denomination, African-American denomination, was standing by a leader who had been embroiled in controversy. And his, I didn't expect his answer, but he says, listen, he says, you know, you you come at this like it's a problem with the African-American church. He says, I look at this and, and see you speaking out of a problem with your middle-class white American church. I said, well, h- how so? And he says, "Your white middle-class American church. You have a pastor, right, and, and leaders? And I said, yeah. Your pastor's educated? Well, yeah. And your leaders are educated? Yeah. Well, how much respect do you give them? I said, what do you mean? He says, All the people in your congregation are educated. And all the people in your congregation are affluent and successful. And he says, so they come to church on Sunday. They're willing to listen to you or they're willing to allow you to function. But they don't submit to you. They don't respect you. If you said something they didn't agree with or if you offended them, they would get rid of you in a heartbeat or challenge you in a heartbeat. They don't really submit to your authority. I started thinking about, well, and he was saying, you don't submit to your pastor's authority, and and it was, so it was actually true. Like, he was calling me out. I was like, ah, I never really thought about that way. And he says, in the African-American church, it's different. We respect our elders. We give uh, a submissive, respectful tone to our leaders. And so when something happens, we don't immediately cast them out or react or, Or overthrow them. And so it's a really fascinating critique in some sense of our kind of class or generation and how we don't really put ourselves under authority positions or submit to it. So it's a fascinating thing. I want to move off cultural real quick and just touch briefly on individual pride. I think that individual pride, the highest form of it is religious pride. So of all the forms of pride, religious pride in some sense is the worst And so when we're talking about individual pride, uh, we're talking about something that we tend to be blind to. And we're also talking about something really paradoxical in the sense that it grows out of something we wouldn't think it would grow out of. I talk to young men that struggle with lust all the time, and I tell them, listen, lust and leisure go hand in hand. If you have too much time on your hands, you're going to invariably begin to struggle with lust." And so I tell them all the time, go to bed tired. So a guy comes to me and says, I'm struggling with lust. And I'm like, really? Where are you serving in the community? Where are you serving in the church? What are you doing so that you're working hard enough to where you go to bed at the end of the night and you fall asleep right away? Like, go to bed tired, you know? But if you're doing nothing but playing video games and watching movies all day long and just just steeped in leisure, I was like, how are you going to not struggle with lust? So Lust, in some sense, grows out of, or gets worse, out of a context of leisure. Pride, especially religious pride, grows out of, get this, goodness. It's, par- it's paradoxical. When you're following the moral code, when you're following God's laws, when you're doing things that are good, out of goodness can grow religious pride. And so we, we often are, are quite blind to this because we look at all the goodness around us and we actually begin to think we're pretty good and it's the thinking we're pretty good that we're not aware of that begins to be the problem. And so St. Augustine once said in his confessions, uh, "'The Lord took me from in front of myself and put me behind myself and that has made all the difference.'" What he basically said is my perspective, my self-awareness, my, my kind of conscious thought of myself going through life has made all the difference. And so we sometimes look at all the good we're doing and that allows this kind of pride to grow up in us, this religious pride that, that makes distinctions, this, this kind of idea of comparisons that, well, if I'm doing good, look at that. It's not good. So I'm doing better than that person. And we begin to see this kind of distinction again. And and what Augustine was kind of saying is, in some sense, we have to have that perspective that says, yes, I'm doing things that are right, but if I begin to grow in my self-righteousness and attribute that goodness to myself, it's not that that's happening because the Holy Spirit is working in my life or because God reached out when I was lost and brought me back or kind of all these other things. If I begin to take credit for that self-righteousness then I begin to sin in the midst of all this morality. That's what's kind of insidious about the church, right? Is that one of the most ostensibly moral places can become one of the most proud or arrogant places. And we see that when we begin to walk into a place and we feel judged or stepped down on or looked down on or we, we feel an absence of grace. And so, Self-righteousness is this kind of ridiculous thing that is so subtle that we always kind of have to guard ourselves against it. Jesus came in the Sermon on the Mount and one of the fascinating things he did was he said to the good people that someday a lot of you are going to get to heaven and you're going to say to me, Lord, Lord, as if you knew me because you're so good. And even though you're so good, by, by kind of these standards of righteousness, I'm going to say to you, depart from me, I knew you not. So although you were kind of measuring up well, your heart was full of pride. Your heart was not in a relationship with me. It wasn't being driven by the love of God in you. Depart from me, I know you not. And then he goes on to tell people, listen, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, then, then you'll never share in the kingdom of heaven. And what he's basically saying is that self-righteousness in fact is unrighteousness. And that true righteousness has got to be born out of a, a, a supple heart and out of humility. And so the Beatitudes, blessed are you who are poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Out of those who are lowly and are not haughty in spirit. That's a religious word, haughty. It's not like whistling at a girl hottie you know but like hot I don't know hottie Um, out of those that are that are kind of humble I'm going to bring this blessing I'm going to bless you I am going to do it and you're going to know that it's me blessing you you're not going to think it's derivative of your own goodness so we have communal pride we have individual pride we have this kind of sense of religious pride by the way the scarlet letter I was thinking about this just the other day The scarlet letter thing, you know, here's this person who sinned, was more about an attitude than a punishment. It's it's not the letter on the sweater. It's really about the attitude of the religious people toward the person who is sinning. And the difference between the self-righteous legalist and those who really are humble and understand God's love for us and then out of that, the the grace. The difference is the proud person sees how you failed the moral code, how you did something not good. It's an action that bothers them. The other person sees the action in the context of the person, okay? An action has no future. It's only past, Every action immediately goes into history, right? When, you, when you're focused on actions, you only see past, and there's no potential there. It's dead, and it's fixed, and it's in concrete. It's in the record or the annals of, of what has happened. And there's nothing that you can bring out of that. It can only be labeled with a letter. Okay, When you see the person who commits a sin... You don't focus on the sin or what's past. You focus on the person. The person is a living dynamic thing that has a future. And when you're focused on a person that has a future, you're focused on potential. So when we become self-righteous and legalistic, we, we, end, up, we end up thinking about punishment for actions. When we, when we really are humble and we see people the way Jesus sees people, we think about potential For sinners. Do you see the difference? So grace is like the exciting thing over here where law and judgment is really the measure of the day over here. And so when we really begin to root out pride and we replace it with a humility that allows for grace, we see people and potential, not sin and punishment. I mean I wish we, we could do a whole series on just that do you see the difference um, Nietzsche uh, I did a whole class on Nietzsche once it was like poisonous to the soul reading everything Nietzsche ever wrote fascinating writer he's one of the best in I've, I've talked to some people that are, are from Germany and I always ask him like you know it's supposed to be one of the most poetic and well-written things ever. Uh, thus spoke Zarathustra. And they're like, yeah, if you ever read it in German, which I never will, um, it's amazing. Well, in, in this kind of thing, and Nietzsche was the philosopher that declared that God is dead, and he was trying to, in some sense, replace meaning in the world in the absence of God. And he hated Christians because he felt like Christians were against or worked against the very program he was trying to build, and what he wanted to build was a very um, person-affirming scheme—the whole idea of the Superman or the uh, the Ubermensch—that um, this we're gonna we're gonna invest in the people, and people are gonna become greater than they they are. And he saw Christians as always wanting to lay people low and attack people and judge people. And so he has a chapter in that book um, called On Tarantulas. And the tarantulas are the Christians. And what he's doing is he's pointing out how judgmental and spiteful and revengeful we are. And, And he calls that, like we're like spiders. He calls it tarantulas. And I think the funny thing is when I was reading that, so much of it rang true that we really do kind of sometimes get caught up in this game of, you're going to get yours. You're going to get yours. If Jesus came today, pff, he would give you yours. you know. Like, and, and we really become like we want people to get punished because that makes us feel better. Why? Because it makes us feel higher or like we're winning against them. And there's that whole distinction again. Does that make sense? So I think we got to be real careful. we got to be careful with this. Um, anyways all right let's let's move on quickly and look at four responses to pride four responses to pride first one we got to fight bad pride with good pride there is such a thing as good pride proverbs seventeen six. children's children are crowned the aged and parents are the pride of their children good pride Isaiah 60, 15. Although you have been forsaken and hated with no one traveling through, I will make you the everlasting pride and the joy of all, all generations. Talking about the city Jerusalem, <clears throat> that God's going to make it this great thing that you can take pride in. 2 Corinthians 5, 12. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us. Paul's like bragging on his status as an apostle and saying, I'm trying to give you stuff so that when you're talking to other people out there, You you can be excited about who we are. You can take pride in us in a good way because God has bestowed authority on them as apostles. Galatians 6, 3 through 5. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Each one should test his own actions. Then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to somebody else. For each one should carry his own load. So if if you... Take pride in yourself in a way that doesn't make comparisons or diminish the glory of God. It's good pride. The best example of this is when you work hard and you finish a job and it's a job well done and you take pride in that. It's a good pride. It's, I'm functioning the way a human's supposed to function. I'm using the gifts God gave me to. I'm being a mature adult and I'm proud. It satisfies me. This is great. I get to move on to the next thing. But it's not that this is better than that, or that I'm 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 so good. Look at look at how I'm doing this, and we d- divorce it from God. So there's a sense in which there's good pride. Now what you got to realize is bad pride corrupts good pride. If you begin to think you're 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 so good, or you become so proud, you begin to not be willing to work. Yeah without getting political, there's a whole debate going on right now with a lot of protests. And one of the big questions is, anyways, the, when you begin to be too proud, you don't want to do something that's beneath you. Or you want somebody else to do it. Or, or, or. And, and you never actually begin to do and to function and to work to the point that you take good pride. Bad pride corrupts good pride. When you, when you realize that your gifts are from God, um, and you can take pride in those, okay? When you begin to think that you're better than everybody else, and, and you lose sight of God giving you talents, you think that it's because of all the time in the gym that you're so great, that corrupts good pride, realizing that God has bestowed gifts on you, but that it's from him. And the person that gave you those looks or gave you those genetics could also take it away. So there's a sense in which there's good pride. Now, the, the way that you can combat bad pride is instilling good pride. So you want your child to not become arrogant, disrespectful, um, boastful, rude. If we instill in children a work ethic rather than video games and, and help them understand that they can derive good pleasure from doing right things, okay? Okay that actually fights bad pride. And so one of the things we have to do is be able to talk about the healthy side of this because it's a natural human emotion and we need to fight bad pride with good pride. I've heard it said before, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less by occupying yourself with the things you're supposed to be occupying yourself with. Second thing is fear God. You know, there's been this debate uh, throughout human history between gods and men. Is it the gods? Is it men? Who has, who's, who's better? Who's more unique? And if you go all the way back to the Greeks, actually even further back, the Israelites, it was the, the temptation with having multiple gods was seeing God as small and thinking that um, regional gods were, were big. And so, you know, you worship kind of different deities thinking that it might help in different ways. And it's a way of lessening the value of God and, and raising the value of kind of these different corporate realities. And then you go to Greek and it's this um, competition where the gods are really morally corrupt. You know, they're just bad people sleeping around with everyone, that kind of thing. And, and the people are kind of fighting against the gods. There's lots of great movies on this stuff, you know, these days. And, and there's this tension, but it's, there's always this argument about should the gods be higher uh, or should people be higher? And the fascinating thing about the Renaissance is this was a rediscovering of Greek thought where we bring in kind of this whole idea of humanism and um, that we can celebrate kind of the human side. So um, let me just show you. This is uh, the this, this Sistine Chapel. Now you're not supposed to take pictures in the Sistine Chapel, but somehow this just ended up on my iPhone. I I make it a rule when in the Sistine Chapel to only follow the rules of God, not of man. But um, so here's don't judge. Here's the uh, here's the last judgment. Okay. Now the interesting thing is you have along along the the walls here you have prophets interspersed with what's called sibyls, which are pagan. Prophetesses. So the fascinating thing is right here, let me show it to you. You have, you ever heard of uh, the oracle at Delphi? There she is. I can't show you the head because the Kip's etch a sketch program won't let me. But there's the oracle at Delphi on the, the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. And, and so the Renaissance actually brings this whole kind of um, humanism from the ancient Greek world back in. And it's like, look at what we can do and look at our accomplishments. And so right on the heels of that, the Reformation was a reaction to the Renaissance. It was actually a reaction to King Leo X, one of the Renaissance popes. Okay, And so the Reformation comes along and reacts to that and says, um, no, it's... It's not thinking better of ourselves. It's understanding that God is higher than we can, we can conceive him. You know, the first commandment, the second commandment, that we really need to fear God. So in the, the cries of the Reformation, uh, sola scriptura, sola gratia, sola fide, solus Christus, uh, soli Deo Gloria. So um, scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone. And then the last one there, uh, soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. And so the big hallmark of that whole period was all of our gifts, all that we can do, if it's going to do anything, it's going to bring glory to God. And so Johann Sebastian Bach is famous, and you probably know this, of putting on the bottom of his compositions, SDG, the abbreviation for uh, Soli Deo Gloria, that this is to the glory of God. That when we fear God, when we respect God, we actually are um, more rightly understanding of how things are. Fear is a sense of awe, sense of respect, and it allows him to be big. If we think smallly of God, this was that whole big God series we did a, a year ago at Antioch. If if something is small, you take and treat it lightly. You don't give it respect. It's all all the examples of my poodle peaches, is, 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 come from this. You know, there's no respect, not even an ounce of respect there, and so size and, and respect in terms of awe and, and bigness in terms of vastness of God, sovereignty of God leads to our rightly putting ourselves underneath God and saying that in all things, it's from God and, and comes through God and is back to God. To him alone be the glory forever and ever, amen. And so it's the sense in which we really need to see God as bigger and, and that begins by fearing God. Fearing God is the beginning of wisdom. Okay? Now the fascinating thing is that in the 70s we had a resurgence of this kind of back and forth that happens always throughout church history. And we had the beginning of what was called the self-esteem gospel. And so a guy by the name of Robert Schuller actually wrote a book called The Self-Esteem, The New Reformation. And what he a- actually said was the problem with the Reformation is it was too God-centered. What we need is a man-centered reformation that focuses more on self-esteem, self-worth, and self-dignity. And, and I disagree completely because all I hear is self, self, self. And I think that when we put God in the supreme place, we find ourselves in submission to him through humility. And so we, we know the self-esteem gospel. It began in the 70s, but it was like the, the church version of everybody gets a ribbon. Okay? Um, and we live with it today, and so it makes it really hard. When we don't fear God or respect God, it makes it really hard to accept God's discipline. And I think one of the biggest problems, to be honest with you, I think one of the hardest things that if we were really going to grapple with truth, because truth sometimes is really harsh. It's that maybe the circumstances in your life, it's not that God doesn't see those circumstances, but maybe those circumstances are actually put there by God to direct or to shape or to challenge or to give an opportunity. When we are so in, and that's not saying everyone's circumstances are that. I'm saying we have to be open to the question that when we go to God to pray, please take rid of these circumstances and we feel really tender and we automatically assume that God's a big teddy bear and he's gonna, he's gonna pat us on the back, that God might actually be a little more stern at that moment saying, no, these are the very circumstances I've put in your life because I, have, I need to or because you're wrong here or because there's something that experience or life needs to teach you here. And yes, I love you. But you have to think bigger than that I'm a teddy bear and everything revolves around you and that you understand everything the way I see it. If we, if we don't fear God, we begin to think we get more than we really do. I mean, does that make sense? I mean, that's a whole different thing. But man, there's probably someone here today that all you really need to hear is be open to the possibility that the conversation God's trying to have with you is different than the conversation you're trying to have with God. He's bigger than your conversation as a box that he has to fit in. And that I, that's, that's hard to digest sometimes. So the first one, fight bad pride with good pride. The second one, we need to fear God. Exodus 20, 20, right In the giving of the Ten Commandments, Moses says this to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The bigger God is, the less pride we're gonna have. The bigger God is, the less we're gonna sin. The third one is this, pursue humility. Pursue humility. So fight bad pride with good pride, fear God, pursue humility. Basically, the idea here is that humility is something you can act on. It's not either something you have or you don't have. It's something that you can grow or develop. It's like, it's like a muscle. It, it's something that can be built over time. Zephaniah 2.3, Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, you who do what he commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility, and perhaps you'll be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. 1 Peter 5.5 5 says this, young man, Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes, uh, opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. If the cure for lust is to go to bed tired, and seriously, if, the, if one of the cures or ways of dealing with lust is to go to bed tired, then one of the ways of dealing with pride is to put your gifts and your assets at God's disposal. Make decisions To pursue humility. Humility is a a lowliness of spirit and of place and of job and role and function. So one of the cures for pride is to put yourself there. So let me just give you three disciplines of humility. If we're going to discipline ourselves for humility, here's three things that we do when we're disciplining ourselves for humility. The first one is silence. Pride only breeds quarrels, but wisdom is found in those who take advice. If you're defensive, if you always have to explain the, the 80% why you're right instead of immediately going, you know what? There's some things here I could have done better. There's 20% here. You know what? I'm sorry for that. If you jump to the thing you did right before the thing you did wrong um, and you're, you're always filling it with speech, you're not going to be able to pursue humility. We need to discipline ourselves for silence, for listening, The second one is submission. Submission. Uh, And we'll just continue. God's discipline falls into that. Are we open to a conversation different than the one we want? The third one is service. Do you know that service, it's like corrective lenses. Uh, Service, like corrective lenses, because uh, you can't serve someone while looking down on them. Right, You can't be on your knee, washing feet, serving someone while looking down on them. So service, it forces you. It's corrective lenses. It's like those braces on Forrest Gump that made him run fast later in his life on his legs. Remember that? Anyways. And so one of the things we have to realize is we've gotten too good for service. Too good for working in the nursery. You know? Too good for being an usher. I mean, I remember like a day when my friends' dads would like, these like Fortune 500 company guys, and they used to see being an usher at church as like a position of authority. You know what I mean? Now we treat it as like, I oh, that job. Or you know, what what are the service things that we maybe are too good for now, but service is where we need to be. It forces us. It's a corrective for humility. Silence, submission, service. Aspects of disciplining ourselves for humility. By the way, Jesus talking about the passage where where he's saying you should wash people's feet. No no servant is greater than his master. And so if I, Jesus, am washing people's feet, uh, feet, plural, then you too have to wash their feet, okay? Because you're not above me. He brought that whole conversation on. He did that whole thing in response to those guys having this dialogue about who is the greatest. It was pride that drew out of Jesus the supreme lesson on service. Service is a corrective to pride. All right, so those are three aspects of humility, but back to the four responses to pride. Um, Fear God, fight, fight uh, fight bad pride with good pride, fear God, pursue humility, discipline ourselves to humility, And then lastly, make thanksgiving a discipline. Or make remembering God a discipline. Make a discipline. All things are from God, through God, and to God. We've got to make giving God the glory. We've got to make worship a discipline more than just singing on Sunday mornings. When we see the goodness of life, we celebrate it and give God the glory. When we have successes in life, we need to Tebow it, you know? I don't know. We give God the glory. And so we remember, Philippians 4, 6 says this, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Our prayers become tainted with pride when there's no thanksgiving in them. Or our prayers become seasoned so that they don't become self-centered or prideful when we remember thanksgiving in them. St. Augustine said this, he called, in in chapter 9 of his confessions, he he called the Psalms um, in the Bible, the Psalms, outbursts of devotion with no room in them for the breath of pride. So he called the book of Psalms, outbursts of devotion, worship, praise with no room for a breath of pride. One of the fascinating things about the Psalms is they follow typically a formula where where we present kind of these needs or these situations. I'm in a pit, but then we begin to celebrate how God has always delivered us from that pit. And then we begin to, to articulate at the end of the psalm how we hope and we trust in God. And so there's kind of this formula where our prayers, because that's what the psalms are, and our worship has with it thanksgiving and hope in the bigness of God. And that God really is our, sal- us, our salvation. Here's a fascinating thing I learned um, in Jewish culture about the Passover. It was that uh, when you stopped remembering the Passover, when someone didn't remember the Passover, when they didn't celebrate the Passover, they were they were. Um, it was said that they forgot the Passover. You forget the Passover. And then the saying was, forgetting is pride. So if you don't celebrate the Passover, where, where we recognize once a year in the Jewish culture that, that God is the one who saves and has saved and will save, when you don't celebrate it, when you don't remember it, it's as if you forget it. And if you forget the Passover, you're ostensibly forgetting that God is our Savior and that God is big enough to save and that God will save. And so that forgetting... And, and diminishing of God as the Savior is a form of pride. So the saying in Jewish culture is, forgetting is pride. So one of the disciplines, the fourth thing here really is, the discipline of thanksgiving, making thanksgiving habit, or the discipline of remembering God. So I want to do something just, I want to just read again out of First uh, John kind of by way of closing. We pride is one of those things and this we have to choose to wade into it. We have to choose to wade into it or God will discipline us and force us to wade into it, but it's it's not something that you came in this morning jumping up and down and said the biggest thing in my life I got to fix is pride. We have to be willing, we have to have the stomachs and the fortitude to realize if it exists and to the degree it does exist, the love of God is diminished in our hearts. So I just want to read out of First John chapter four by way of closing and let let's, let this be our closing prayer. First John chapter four, verse seven. Dear friends, by the way, I heard a good joke. Pastor told his church that he wanted them all to call each other brother and sister. Someone said, is that because we're all one in the family or the body of Christ? The pastor said, no, it's because it's the only way I can make sense of the bickering that I hear in the back row. One of the things that we can take good pride in is the church. You know, what I'm, you know what I'm saying? The church that God gave us, the church, we can take pride that we have a church, that our church is healthy. And then to the degree that we live out the communal life of the church, the barn raising, you know, the Sunday potluck and then all pitching in to help each other raise a barn, to the degree that we take part in the barn raising of the church, we can take pride in that. Feed on it in a good way. It's something God has given to us and it's good. Dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. And whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. And this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And no one who has ever seen God, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, then God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. No one has ever seen God But if we love one another, then God lives in us. May people see God in us. This day, this week, this month, that's my prayer for us. In Christ's name, amen.